0: Hello and welcome to the Exit Velo podcast. This is episode number 72 and spring is in the air. We are almost there. The season is right around the corner. Unintentional rhyme there. Spring in the air, almost there. Didn't mean to do that. Didn't have it scripted out, but hey, that would have been pretty good open if I did. I guess it was a good open anyways, but Adam, how are you doing tonight? And I know you are excited like I am to be watching some spring training baseball.
1: I'm doing great. It's really nice to just have baseball back and just even getting notifications on the MLB.com at Bat app and just seeing game scores and pitching changes. I just missed it so much. And we didn't really have too much of a season in 2020. So to just be spent to have this full season in 2021, it feels
0: great. It really does feel great. And just like spring training in itself, just all the games we're getting right now is like, half of everything that we got last year. Granted, I know these games are, aren't quite as meaningful. Uh, really don't mean a whole lot at all, but still awesome just to see the players back on the field and awesome to see these games with fans in the stands, actually. Some of that crowd noise that we missed out on last year and the, with the cardboard cutouts. And, and certainly we know that was necessary, but it's just the game just has such a different feeling with, with fans around and you know, just, just being able to see that atmosphere, people running after home run balls, grabbing foul balls and everything. It's just – isn't it just baseball played? Isn't it just much better with, with fans watching at them?
1: Of course. I, I really did not like the cutouts. I mean, it was necessary for 2020 just because there was no fans at all. But a cutout cannot replace a real person. It was sometimes funny when a ball would just go Shoot. right through the cutout and they'd break in half and <laughs> see, like, someone's head on a different seat. So oh. I guess – out of anything, I'll miss that, but to have actual people there cheering, and most people for are are wearing masks and socially distanced, so they're doing the best they can, and hopefully more fans will come out to the ballpark as the season goes on, too.
0: Yeah, and that's actually how I want to start uh, the show tonight, talking a little bit, just give a general rundown of, of where the league's at in terms of fans in the stands. Uh, we had a little bit of news to report on that as well within the last couple of days, Uh, So just to set the stage, we know that before spring training started, Commissioner Manfred told the teams uh, that the MLB will permit them to allow fans in the stands. The kicker is that they do need to work with their local state or their, sorry, their local and state health officials uh, to follow the guidelines that those officials put in place. Uh, So the league is, is not really having any restrictions around it. As it relates to, as a whole to having fans there, just you need to follow those guidelines. But they do have a couple details that is part of being allowed to have fans in the stands, and of course that is wearing masks, and that is of course uh, selling tickets in small pods uh, where it's kind of kind of naturally facilitates social distancing. So good to kind of see that those those protections built into that plan. Now we did get a little bit of news, uh, what I alluded to here in the last couple days, the governor of California announced that fans are going to be able to attend MLB uh, games in that state. I know that's huge news given that there's five teams out there in California. uh, And it it looks like actually going to be able to have up to 20% uh, of capacity for for those West Coast teams. So that's another huge, awesome, good news, Adam. Uh, I know know you were probably as excited to hear that as I was. Not that we're West Coast guys who are necessarily going to be able to go to a game, but – just given that conversation that we know that baseball is is better with people watching.
1: And I'm honestly surprised that they're allowing as many as, as much as 20%. I know New York in the past has only said 10%. So to have a state that's been as effective as California go and allow that many people in a ballpark, that's, that's amazing. I, I think the one concern that we should keep in mind is that people might not socially distance on their own. They might do this a little bit, but there should be, guards or police officers, just making sure that people are wearing their masks, people are socially distanced because even if 90% of them are not doing that and the other 10%, it's still a ton of fans there and you don't want anyone to get sick of course while going to these games.
0: That's a great point as well, Adam, and good to keep that in mind huh, that we do still need to be vigilant, need to be safe and that even a small number of people not following those rules, it, it could have big effects as it relates to, fighting this virus. Uh, but some more details on that uh, California news. Uh, I guess the way that state breaks down their, their COVID uh, by counties, I guess they color code it versus to, sell, to show how bad it is in any particular area. Uh, so Los Angeles and Anaheim, I know, are in the purple zone, which is is the worst one. Uh, So as it is with that, I think San Diego actually and Oakland are too. San Francisco is currently at the level to where they would be able to have 20% already. Uh, But those other four teams in the purple zone could only have 100 people in attendance if the season were to start today. But it does sound like there's some encouraging news and that health officials believe that they should be good uh, to move into the red zone by opening day. So I I thought that was exciting news to hear as well.
1: I also like the fact that those 100 tickets being sold to the Purple Tier stadiums, they're going to be making bank on that. They will overcharge that so much. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a couple hundred dollars per game. And you can probably sit anywhere in the stadium too. It's almost going to be like a minor league game. So you're almost guaranteed to get a baseball. And sure, it would be nice if they were to do a raffle and allow just the ordinary person to get in if they're interested. But that's not, that's not how it's going to work. The MLB wants to capitalize as much as they can another limiting season and they're going to overcharge these prices.
0: I I agree. That is probably how it's going to go down. I think money is going to talk in that situation. And especially too, as you mentioned that, you know, all the revenue that was lost last year and, and the limits that we had around the season that they're not, not uh, that basically they're going to try and make all the money that they can. Uh, so I would expect that to go to the highest bidder as well. But Hopefully we're able to get into those red zones uh, quickly so we're able to get at least 20 percent into the stadiums, which is good for baseball, too. And and the front line or the bottom line, rather, the financial aspect of it, just having people in the seats and able to purchase concessions and everything, just support those teams, support the baseball economy. So another another great reason to wear masks, be safe and and try and get those COVID numbers um, keep moving in the right direction, which I think, you know, as a whole, things are are starting to look up. It's, It's pretty encouraging looking around the nation right now.
1: Even my stepmom at this point actually has gotten both uh, parts of the vaccine. So, a lot of teachers, and she's a teacher, and that's how she's got the vaccine. So, that's making good headway at my school. A lot of the faculty members are getting COVID 19 vaccines as well. And pretty much as by the year's end, we could have a lot of the country vaccinated. And it's tough to say whether anything really be the same, but it's good progress. Maybe in a next, by next year, it'll be a completely different story.
0: I mean, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I actually uh, didn't know this, but I just heard the other day that apparently President Biden is saying that we may be able to vaccinate all U.S. adults by the end of May or uh, everyone who would want a vaccine, I guess. But it's kind of crazy. I didn't know it it was supposed to be that fast. Maybe that's a little ambitious, but still, I mean, that would be great for baseball to be able to have that widespread of vaccinations. I think that would just lend to numbers looking even better to the point where you could open up attendance probably even more so. Um, but looking at it as it is now, we most of the teams in baseball are, already have plans in place to have limited fan attendance. Usually right around 20% or so is that sweet spot. But there are a handful of teams that have not yet been permitted by their state and local health officials to have fans So I'll run through that list pretty quickly here. We have the Baltimore Orioles still working on that. Both the Cubs and the White Sox still working with the city of Chicago, although it does sound like those talks are going pretty well. Hopefully an agreement is right around the corner. The Tigers can have fans in the stands, but only 1,000, which is less than 3% of their ballpark's capacity. So that's fairly restrictive, uh, but, I mean, it is better than the 100 we would see in those California purple zones. Uh, So there is that. The Twins don't have a, an agreement in place yet, but they are hoping for about 10,000 fans in the stand. And it sounds like that's, that's going to be happening pretty soon. The Mariners, no agreement yet with the city of Seattle. And then finally, the Nationals uh, sounded like one of the more bleak situations. I guess the city of D.C. Uh, had flat out denied their request for having fans in the stadiums so that they may have the longest way to go there
1: really kind of hate to see it because all these teams are having fans in the stands and to be one of the select few that aren't or having difficulty, it's, it's kind of like a slap in the face, especially, especially in the nation's capital too. the nationals just winning the world series a couple of years ago. That's, that's really tough for them.
0: It is. And, and I know it definitely, I mean, I, as being a Cubs fan, it kind of sucks being on the outside, looking in here that all those other teams have their plans ready to go and, You know, why not us, too? I I mean, I think at this point, it really looks like it can be done safely. It helps a lot that it's an outdoor environment as well. And I'm not saying, you know, open up the gates and let everybody in and and have an unsafe situation. But I think, you know, doing it in pods, limited capacity, there's a way to make this game better for everybody and, and still do it in a safe way.
1: Of course. And I've been saying this before in the podcast too. When I was broadcasting for the Rockford Rivets in Illinois this past summer, the Northwoods League, we had fans in the ballpark. And our highest capacity was about thirty five hundred and we had up to seven hundred to a thousand fans a night. And that was fine. And people, you know, were socially distanced and they wore their masks. And as the pandemic is going away slowly and slowly and nation's starting to look better, then we can allow more fans in the ballpark and hopefully these select teams will start to come around too.
0: And it, it does sound to like at least most of this list, they're still trying to get an agreement figured out. I, I know the nationals are maybe the the worst situation there, but I think the situation is optimistic for most of these teams. They will be able to get some sort of capacity in those stadiums. I know with the Tigers, we mentioned that they do already have it, but hopefully get that a little bit over the 1000, but I'm with you, man. I'm totally looking forward to getting back a little bit closer to normal. And it's just going to be great for the finances of the game, too, to be able to rebound. And then I, I would just love to see that trickle down to players getting paid a little bit more, especially some of those veterans who we see just seems like they're getting squeezed out or either having to retire early or getting smaller and smaller contracts, minor league deals. I think I mean just the financial state of the game is going to be all around better the more fans we can get sitting in those stadiums.
1: And we've been seeing players get squeezed out for years, players starting to sign during spring training. And that even happened this week too. There was a couple of signings. Jackie Bradley Jr., for example, signed a two-year $24 million deal with the Brewers. And he was really one of the best second—or excuse me center fielders on this list, especially after George Springer as well. And yes, it's a nice deal for him, but it's hard to fathom why it took him this long to sign a deal for Major League Club is obviously he's a very valuable asset. He's going to have 15 to 20 home runs, be a great outfielder for the team. And he was out of work for quite some time. And then you see Jake Odorizzi, who's in that nice tier two of pitchers this offseason, just signed a two-year deal with the Astros, for third-year player option. And the Astros needed pitching the entire time. A lot of teams could have used Odorizzi's services as well, but he didn't sign till this week.
0: Yeah, it was, it was good to see those players getting deals and, and kind of weird for both of them to go so long and, and not signing until into spring training. Good money on that Jackie Bradley deal for him, getting the two years, $24 million. And I think that that ballpark is, is going to help his offensive game as well. Everybody seems to go to Milwaukee and see the offensive stats take off. It, look at what Christian Yelich was in Miami, and then all of a sudden he's MVP, one of the best players in the league. Not saying that's all ballpark related, but it certainly does help. It's a very hitter-friendly environment. I think that'll help Jackie Bradley, and yeah, the defense is going to play anywhere. He's a tremendous center field, t- tremendous center fielder defensively. I think that'll be a good addition for the Brew Crew, and yeah, I like Oda Rizzi to the Astros as well. I think that's a pretty good fit, especially considering uh, they they have a little bit more of a need for starting pitching. They did throughout the off season. Uh, but they lose starting pitcher Frambert Valdez to a finger fracture earlier this week in spring training. And some of the news around that is, is not looking so great. I mean, a finger fracture doesn't sound all too serious. You know, it's not a ACL tear or it's it's not Tommy John surgery. But it does sound like he's going to need surgery that could keep him out for quite a while, perhaps even the entire season. So that is Pretty major blow for the Astros, but at least they were able to go out and get Odorizzi to help shore up that rotation.
1: Odorizzi was needed after that. And even without Valdez on the team or playing for the team or not, they needed another starter just to be competitive in the ALS and just to be competitive with the Yankees and White Sox in the American League and can also throw in the Twins there too. So the Astros, of course, have Zach Greinke, who's 37, 38 years old. After him, it falls to Lance McCullers Jr. And then now after that, it falls to Oda Rizzi, which looks a lot better than bringing up another one of their young starters. And they also have Justin Verlander come back at some point. So they'll, they should be all right now. And Oda Rizzi, he's an innings eater, and he's been durable for a while. So he's a great signing for them.
0: Yeah, and he, he. I know he did have a little bit of injury trouble in 2020, uh, and then performance wasn't great for him there either. It was a six five nine ERA. Granted, that was only in four games, and it's a, that's a tiny sample size within a tiny sample size of the shortened season. But you look back to 2019; it was a three five one ERA. I think he. I know he was an All Star. I wanted to say he may have started the All Star games. I know he had a really tremendous first half of that 2019 season. So. The upside is definitely there for Rizzi and, and I love what you mentioned, too, in Innings Eater. That's something that's going to be important in a, in a rotation like that where you lose Valdez. you got Lance McCullers coming back. I know he made it back last year from that injury, but still they're going to be wanting to build him up. Uh, Justin Verlander, if he does return this season, I know they're probably not going to be wanting him to pitch a two uh, tremendous amount of endings. So good to have a guy like Odorizzi who can give you a lot of work, uh, a very durable guy for the most part. That's about it as far as transactions go for this week. Not a whole lot of, of player movement. I know there's still a couple relief pitchers out there on the market looking for homes. Roberto Osuna is the notable one I think of. But I do feel like there's another couple bullpen arms out there. Adam, are there any big dominoes in the in the free agent market that you're still waiting to sign?
1: Not really that comes to mind. It seemed like Odorizzi and Bradley Jr. really the last big two. I do want to mention however the implications of these playoff races with these signings because the Brewers actually really improved their defense this offseason. They have Colton Wong at second base and they also have Jackie Bradley Jr. now Manning either center field or right field depending on where they play Renzo Kane, and they're pushing Avsiel Garcia into the backup role which is probably where he belongs and he's a good bench He's a better bench player too. So the Brewers look very good and those two moves this offseason I wouldn't say that that equal or equates getting Nolan Arenado for the Cardinals, but the Brewers have better pitching. They have a, they've won the best bullpen ERAs last year. They have starters with more upside. The Cardinals do have Jack Flaherty, of course, but a lot of their starters are unproven or were good a couple of years ago. That's Adam Wainwright and Carlos Martinez, for example. So a lot of people are predicting the Brewers to now win the Central because of signing Bradley.
0: And I think it certainly helps. I know it it isn't splashy like a Nolan Arenado, but I'm starting to come around to their pitching too, man. Earlier in the offseason, I wasn't really digging it, but Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns is pretty two ace-like guys at the top of that rotation. I don't know if I'm taking either one of them necessarily over Jack Flaherty, but I'm sure as heck taking uh, either one of them over whatever number two you want to bring up for the Cardinals. So. I think, yeah, and then that bullpen, too, is phenomenal behind Josh Hader, Devin Williams. Uh, so I, the pitching definitely a strong suit for Milwaukee, and I think the offense will still be good enough. Colton Wong will help for sure. And Jackie Bradley is not a not a complete zero on offense. We mentioned 15, 20 homers usually a pretty safe bet for that. Maybe Miller Park helps him out a little bit. So I – I don't know if I'm necessarily picking the Brewers. I don't think they would be my pick to win the Central, but this helps, and you could make a case for it. I don't think that would be ridiculous.
1: And even with the Astros, too, I feel like a lot of fans would still pit them over the A's, and they might still pit their starting rotation over the A's, too. The A's, again, they always find a way with their pitching and with their hitting, but a lot of these guys are unproven. You have Chris Bassett, Jesus Lizardo, Shamanea and Mike Fiers Mike Fiers is more durable but he's starting to get up there in age and won't be as good he's projected to be their number five starter so that's a decent rotation the Astros also have a decent rotation so it's almost like a push coming between them so the Astros are still well within rights of contending despite finishing under 500 last season
0: yeah, and I, I would give the edge to Houston based on their offense. I think a lot more of offensive fireworks there than you see in Oakland, which granted they do always find a way to surprise you. And they got Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. So it's not to say that the A's don't have any good hitters themselves. Uh, but even with losing George Springer, you still have Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, Jordan Alvarez, and keeping Michael Brantley around at the top of that lineup too. I think it's going to be very, very strong. Alex Bregman, didn't even say him, but – Super strong lineup for Houston. I think they'll kind of get back to 2019 form and certainly be over 500. They they would be my pick to win the AL West.
1: Especially since they are also allowing cameras to be accessed through the dugout this time, too. <laughs> so that will help the Astros a lot, and I'm sure it'll be even more sneaky this time around.
0: I actually saw something earlier on Twitter that MLB is now – Blurring out catcher signals on live broadcast uh, to where you won't be able to see the, the signs that the catcher is giving to the pitcher. But maybe that is, is an Astros effect as well.
1: Hmm. I would not be surprised. And a Red Sox effect for that matter too. The Astros, of course, in a much larger scale.
0: Yeah, that's true. The Red Sox shouldn't get off scot-free there either. And they're bringing back cheating manager Alex Cora too, which really, if I'm being fair, I think Cora was maybe just more of a, a scapegoat for that thing. Somebody needed to be fired or a couple more people needed to be fired. So, I mean, I don't think he's like the single like worst actor in baseball, you know, the the face of the cheating movement or anything, but I I wouldn't say that he didn't do anything wrong, but just something interesting to watch him coming back to Boston this year. Uh, But other news and notes. um, Last thing I really had that I wanted to discuss is that sounds like the triple A season is going to be delayed at least a month. Uh, and I guess part of the thinking there is not have as much transportation. Uh, I know it's a little bit different of a situation. Triple A players are, are not really on like the private planes that we see at the major league level. So there's possibly a risk that they would be flying with people who could expose them to COVID. And then maybe just having those seasons not overlap at the beginning is a chance to hopefully combat that. Um, and then I guess too uh, helps with um you know, minor league guys getting ramped up a little bit more time, not having any season last year. I know the guys were at the alternate sites, but that was that was kind of my takeaways behind that. Adam, were you any any impressions uh, otherwise for the AAA season being delayed?
1: I understand the reasoning behind this because they're trying to give them a slower start, as you mentioned, and also, yes, they'll be in more close quarters of each other, but you are going to be close quarters with your team, no matter how you slice it. It's... It's kind of ridiculous to me that they have to delay the season, and and they're already losing revenue. They're already not going to have as many fans, especially in the minor leagues. And I know they're getting their salary raised as well. I, I wonder if that's a factor in it too, because maybe they'll have to pay them for that month of oh man actually Another playing pro rated too.
0: salary argument, man. I hope not. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I, mean, I, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I mean, I hopefully it wouldn't be as ugly at the AAA level as, as what we saw last year, but. Man, I I did not miss that when we were having those discussions almost a year ago. Now that was a wild couple months trying to figure out how we were going to start that season.
1: It was literally every week on our podcast. We're like, "All right, here's what's happening now. Here's their proposal. Here's how they respond to that proposal." And you know, if this happens to AAA, they're not going to win the fight. They don't have any representation, really. They need to be part of the player players union or the players association, rather, but they're not. So the MLB can really do whatever they want with them.
0: That's a good point too. And it is unfortunate that the MLB can kind of just flex their might with the minor leagues often. I know we saw it with, um, you know, some teams getting shut down over the off season too. It's not always, uh, hardly ever actually great for the game, great for baseball to see the way that those players are treated sometimes, but hopefully uh, a little bit more power coming their way with the new CBA after 2021. I know there's going to be a lot of, items on the agenda for doing that when those talks do roll around service time. I know it's going to be a huge one as well, but yeah, I guess the other part of this too is, is trying to delay the season to where you can have fans in the stands and as many of them as possible for as long as possible. But I don't know if that really makes sense. Cause I mean, you could start now with limited capacity and then hopefully open it up more later. So I, I didn't really know about that argument either.
1: I don't I don't understand why they didn't just model this after the MLB season, because if they're doing it, they, the minor league should be doing it too. There's, there's no real reason. You can have them have a spring training. You can even have them have a longer spring training for those not invited to Florida or Arizona at the moment. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I understand the precautions, but if you're with your team all the time, and we even see that at my college right now, teammates together all the time, they are more relaxed about the virus just because they're always around each other. And if one of them gets it, then they all get it. They get tested frequently too. They should be all right.
0: Man, that's a good point too. There's, I mean, there's really no way around those close contacts. It's going to happen one way or another, whatever you do. And hopefully with the situation looking better as it is around the country, we we get to a point, I would think we'd be at a point where we could start the season on time, but I guess I'm not the guy who makes those decisions. I am particularly upset about it because my, I I guess I don't follow the AAA side of them that much, but the Iowa Cubs, the AAA affiliate of the Cubs was supposed to come to Louisville where I live for the first series of the season. I was looking forward to going and seeing them, but I don't know if they're actually going to make it now. I thought I saw a revised schedule, but I don't know if that's finalized yet, but a bit of an aside about me there. Uh, Let's, Let's move on to some stuff that everybody cares about and just some some major, or I don't know, major, but some storylines from spring training and the early sample that we have uh, throughout the past week. One of the big talking points is Shohei Otani returning to the mound. I know he did not pitch last year. Uh, looks healthy. He His stuff was pretty good. He was sitting in the high 90s, mixing in uh, curves, splitter, and slider, even touching 100 at times. And... It was a bit of a mixed bag. He he pitched an um, inning and two-thirds, uh, recorded all five of those outs with strikeouts, but he did give up three hits, two walks, and an earned run. Uh, so not a perfect outing by any means. But I think the biggest thing here is seeing him out there looking healthy and the stuff looking pretty good.
1: Pretty much in spring training, can never really look at the results unless you're battling for a position. Otani is going to be in rotation no matter what. He's going to be pitching once a week. So – for him to just go out and his scuff to look sharp and to rack up all those strikeouts, that's the biggest takeaway, especially since he hasn't been on the mound in a year.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, it, the health is really the biggest thing for Otani. That's That's been the one thing that's really held him back as a pitcher because he's been awesome when he's on the field. It's just staying on the field is, is the tough part there. But Sounds like they're, they're going to go full speed ahead, working him as a two-way player, hitting almost every day, too. He crushed a home run over the batter's eye the other day, just absolutely demolished this baseball. So very exciting to see him playing both ways, and hopefully that health holds up because baseball is just better with a healthy Shohei Otani putting on a show. Um, some other spring training bullets I wanted to discuss. We've got a couple guys with three home runs already. That's Joey Gallo of the Rangers, the outfielder slash DH. First baseman for the Red Sox, Bobby Dalbick, has a ton of power, so not really surprising there. And then Josh Rojas, shortstop for the Diamondbacks with three home runs already. Some guys showing out already. Uh, But Wander Franco, another young shortstop really showing out as well. He has a 1.100 OPS for the Rays. Granted, you can't really look too much at OPS with a small sample, but – He is leading the team in at-bats, so that's potentially significant. And he has two home runs as well. And when are we going to see this great talent come up to the MLB, Adam? I know you're probably not looking forward to it as an AL East guy.
1: He might be the best pure minor league hitter at this point. And I think the Rays, they already have a decent shortstop in William Damis, but he's not going to be a top-tier shortstop, at least for a little while. And once Franco comes up, he's holding that spot. And it's only a matter of time, really, that before Adamas gets traded or the race shift him over, they trade someone to make room for Franco. So I wouldn't be surprised at this this year. This could even happen by the deadline. I think they want to like at least see how he does at the major league level first, because a lot of players are very night and day when they first get their cup of coffee.
0: Right. And, and it is worth noting, too, he's only 20 years old, uh, so he'd be very young, he'd be kind of a Juan Soto-like call-up, but it sounds like he has Juan Soto-like talent. So just a matter of, of when, uh, not if at this point. And yeah, he hasn't played above high A ball yet either, but I mean, he's, he's crushing it at spring training. Everybody knows he's got all the talent in the world, so I'm hoping it's sooner rather than later. At least get past the service time manipulation deadline and then just call him up and let us get Juan Franco.
1: I think there's a little bit more reason than that. I think, yes, you can blame it more on service time this time around. I know we talked more in depth about this with Chris Bryant and other players like Matiel Franco, who have experienced a bad side of service time manipulation, but I think Franco does need a little bit more seasoning just because he's young, and he still needs to go to AAA, and he still needs to spend some good amount of time there. He can still come up in 2021, though, and if not, he should be a starter by 2022,
0: I think that is a fair point, Adam, that, you know, he's not like a 24 year old who's like very obviously has, has proven everything in the minors at this point, although he's he's proven quite a bit in the minors despite his young age. So yeah, I think that makes sense that it's not necessarily cut and dry service time manipulation, but I'm sure they won't mind to have an extra year of control for that potentially generational talent. Uh, but I'm just looking forward to seeing him at some point. And then some other spring training things I wanted to discuss. Trevor Bauer, I know, made his Dodgers debut the other day, or Dodgers spring training debut. Uh, he had two strikeouts and two scoreless innings, looking strong. He actually might have pitched again today. I probably should have checked up on that performance before the show started, but looking good there so far for Trevor Bauer and his new new city, new team. And then speaking of new guys, new faces and new places, uh, Lindor struggling a little bit for the Mets. No hits and six at-bats. Is Francisco Lindor washed up, Adam?
1: Hey, we both didn't have him as number one in our shortstop list, so maybe he's a little washed up at this point. Maybe he's getting used to the Mets Florida facilities. He's over for 6, though. That, that happens yeah. to every single major league baseball player. And even who you mentioned earlier, Bobby Dalback and Joey Gallo, sure, they have great power. And Rojas, too, maybe he's competing for a spot on the Diamondbacks roster, but it's very early in spring training. They don't have a lot of at bats. Even Franco only ten at bats, and you can't even look at OPS or homers at that point. It's just, it's just hard to gauge so early on. It was even hard to gauge in cc game season last year, and a lot of player stats going to be completely out of whack in twenty twenty one too. So I don't really think too much of it for Lindor.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right there, man. This is this is overreaction season though. When when all we have is this small sample size, I gotta try and wrap my head around it and come to some sort of sweeping conclusion. So now obviously I do not think that Francisco Lindor is done. I know he's going to be just fine in New York and looking forward to seeing him a lot, but maybe if this is something that like persists throughout the, the spring and I, mean, if we see no hits for Lindor in spring training, that would be a pretty big concern, but he'll he'll figure it out and at least get, get a couple hits recorded, get some decent numbers. It's mostly just, you know, getting the timing down and, and getting comfortable ready for the start of that season. But that's all I have for spring training, uh, so I think we are going to go ahead and move on to the second half of the show where we will continue our positional preview, and this time we are turning our attention to catcher, some may say the weakest position in baseball, maybe that's when you're thinking from an offensive mindset for sure the weakest, which is kind of just natural. It's, it's not really guys getting usually a full slate of playing time to put up huge offensive stat lines usually some kind of timeshares there and and a lot more of a orientation around defense is a very important defensive position. I think so. There's still some fun guys to discuss here, Adam.
1: I think so too. And you said at best in how catching positions a bit weak. You don't really see too many catchers that are great two way players. And even if they are, they don't really do it for too long and for a long period of time. So they're usually pretty flaky they usually burn out by their 30s. It's hard to have a catcher who's really the best catcher in the game for a while, but we'll get there when we get to our number one, and there's a catcher that's – or a couple of catchers, rather, who really have been, been the best at their game for a couple of years. However, just starting off right at number 10, so I really didn't want to put him on this list because I didn't want to be a homer. However, he still seems like the best bet over the competition that he just missed out. The three players who just missed out on my list was Austin Nola, who had a great come up for the Padres last season. Jacob Stallings, who's been great for the Pirates so far, and Perez who had a career year. So Nolan Stallings still hasn't played a full year. Perez is batting out of his mind last year, had a 375 batted ball in play when he's usually around 275. So he's gonna regress a lot and his on-base percentage probably won't hit 300. So on that note, I'm putting Gary Sanchez in my number 10. And we can see a couple of different versions of Sanchez. He can be under the Mendoza line. He can be a terrible defender behind the plate. And he's looked good so far in spring training, and he still has great power. But that power is really what keeps him on the list because he has the most power potential of any catcher in the list. He can still hit 30 home runs in a year. He still has a can of an arm behind the plate. He still has great walk rate despite a low batting average. So I I have faith that he can still put up a two-war season or so, He's not one of the best catchers in the list, and he's no longer the player he once was when he came up, but he should still be a great stand and one of the better catchers in the game.
0: And I don't think that's a homer pick at all, Adam. Actually, I have Gary Sanchez on my list as well. I can put him a couple hot spot, or a couple spots higher. That's probably because I've been appreciating him from afar, and I haven't had to deal with the frustrations of, of him kind of bottoming, bottoming out these last few years. But I think the upside is still definitely there. He's only going to be 28 next year. And I want to believe that he can turn back into that guy he was when he first came up. And even being like a 270-ish type hitter, that may be out the window now. But I think the power, for sure, is still legit. We saw him hit 34 home runs in 2019. Maybe the defense isn't great, but I don't think you have to be all that great defensively to crack the top 10 if you have that much offensive upside. So, yeah, I'm here for you, too, on, on Gary Sanchez. Number 10 on my list was James McCann, uh, the former White Sox, making his way to the Mets. Should be playing pretty often there, get a good amount of, of game experience to help boost those offensive stats. And he is a, a pretty good offensive player as well. I know he batted uh, right around, it was two eighty-nine last year, he was two seventy-three the year before. Uh, he's got a little bit of power, can give you 15 or so home runs. I know he had 18 in 2019, was was on pace actually for 20-ish or so last year. And the defense is actually pretty good for McCann as well. Um, he had five defensive runs saved in each of the last two years, so pretty above average there, good glove. And he's actually worth the sixth most war among catchers since 2019. So I, I felt pretty good about James McCann. Number 10, maybe even could have been higher on my list.
1: You know, it's funny, Henry, because every time we do these top 10 lists, I send you the depth charts from fan graphs, which is how we evaluate these different catchers. But Kan was not even in the top 10. And there was a reason why the Mets paid him four years $40 million because he maybe didn't have the best start to his career, but he's starting to turn into a guy who can hit 10 to 15 home runs, who's a reliable bat stop behind the plate. The Mets got their catcher this offseason. And they have not been JT Romuto, but the Mets also saved money that can be used for extensions for Lindor and Conforto. McCann's a very solid replacement. I have him a couple of spots higher. He certainly belongs on this list. Uh, for me, number nine is Sean Murphy. and He's only played 63 games in the major league level, but boy, has he made them count. He already has a 2.1 F4. He's great on both sides of the ball, has our great walking percentage too, the walk rate, I should say. So He's a star in the making he really was the best rookie catcher in 2020 and there's reason to believe just with the power display in the minor elites and his discipline in the minor elites too that he's legit and he should have a great 2021 season as well
0: and honestly I did kind of forget about Sean Murphy and putting on my my list together that's probably because he has only been around for 60 games or so but yeah he's shown a lot of upside in that time got his baseball reference page pulled open now and uh, he was a Over 800 OPS in in each of his first two seasons. Granted, small samples of both. But yeah, that was 899 in 2019 and still 821 last year. So that's pretty awesome offensive upside, especially at this position. So I I can't fault the Sean Murphy pick at all. Number nine for me, I went with somebody who was, I mean, I know Murphy's a good defender as well. But the reason I picked this guy at number nine was strictly defense. And that was Roberto Perez uh, for the Indians. And I think he's one of the very best defensive catchers in all of baseball. I know he has crazy uh, defensive run save numbers. It's always very great at that, uh, in comparison to league average for defense for the catchers. One of the best defenders. And it isn't all that terrible. He's, he's not really a great offensive player at all, but he did hit 24 home runs in 2019. Uh, the batting average is usually pretty bad, but yeah, I mean, the defense, I think, is strong enough to where I, I had to give him a nod here. He he was a gold glove winner uh, for both 2019 and 2020 positions, so defense really shines for him. So had to give him some love.
1: I'm glad you did because I unfortunately did not have him on the list. There's a lot of decent catchers, and I think that with Perez, his he was a great offensive contributor in 2020, or excuse me, 2019, but they didn't really show last year, so it was hard to put him – on the top 10 list when there's at least a fair number of two-way catchers, but he's certainly among the best defensively. He's has been his entire career. And if he can also get his homers above 10 or so, he's certainly belonging on this list. Then going to my number eight pick, it's James McCann. And I think the biggest question of him from going to a good to an elite catcher is can the power stay and can the on-base percentage stay? He's had 25 home runs in 149 games the past two seasons and his on base percentage last year an abbreviated season was three sixty. If he can have that over a full year, he's going to break out for a three war season, maybe even a four war season. You have the good defense on the plate too. And he could really even be higher on the list.
0: Yeah. I mean, if he can stay around at three sixty on base percentage, he may be pushing somebody a little higher up on our list for best catcher in that division. Uh, but we'll get to that later on in the show. I, I don't know if that's necessarily uh realistic to sustain that but if he can be close to it at least he can certainly be a very productive offensive player and a very good lineup too so I know the counting stats would look good for him as well number eight on my list I know we were in similar ballparks here I had Gary Sanchez I know you mentioned him at number 10 I think we covered him pretty well it's really just getting back to that upside that he flashed so early on and he's still you know even as as the batting averages failed over the last couple of years you are still seeing that power and there's still been flashes from, from Gary Toe. I think he actually is a guy who already has two home runs in spring training as well. So maybe we can overreact to that and claim Gary Sanchez is back. Soundy
1: alarms, honestly, because <laughs> even when you see him bleacher report in the Yankees section, they're already raving, like, oh, Gary Sanchez is back. Yankees are hoping that he's this type of player over the course of the full season. Meanwhile, this guy's hardly ever played over 100 games during the year. Kyle Higashioka will... Still take a lot of time away from him at the plate. He'll still hit 20-plus homers, though, and power's legit. He was second-fastest player ever, I believe, to reach 100 home runs. So he's very good, and he needs to really prove it this year, and I think he's determined to step up for the Yankees. And he even played in the Dominican Winter League, because one won that strap. So I believe in his work ethic. Trucking right
0: Contract up, uh Contract here for him, too, right, Adam?
1: I actually got to double check that, but he almost got non-tender this past season. And the Yankees were like, all right, give me one more chance. I think he is one year under team control, but if he doesn't perform this year, he's getting non-tendered essentially.
0: Yeah. Well, something to prove, looking for that next next deal.
1: Mm -hmm. For sure. If he can have even a good 2021 season, a decent 2022 season, he should secure the bag.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see that. I want to see Gary get back to his former glory. There's an offensive star in there somewhere. There
1: is, and I, I still miss the Gary of old when he pretty much came and hit 20 home runs in his first season debut. So that was that was incredible. He he's not the type of player anymore. Not the type of player that you said earlier to hit around 270, but he's still very impressive. And actually, one catcher who's on my list at actually number seven that's always reminded me of him a little bit is Wilson Contreras. Just this catcher of a lot of raw power really good arm behind the plate too and Contreras is still one of the better catchers in the games so it'll be interesting too because I really do want to save the Cubs I know you do as well Henry and if he can have another really good season then perhaps the Cubs can retain him
0: yeah I would I would love to see Wilson Contreras sticking around and we do at least have two years of team control for him but he's been a very popular target in trade rumors after JT re resigned, and we saw James McCann going to New York. It was kind of the, I guess he was the next best thing. who's quote out there as the Cubs looked to retool? But yeah, all the talent in the world. I have him a couple spots higher up on my list, probably a Homer ranking. But I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to to seeing Wilson continue to contribute, and I think his defense is really coming a lot a long way as well, and I know pitch ranking in particular or something he's improved at. Uh, but number seven on my list, I had a Mitch Garver who had a pretty awful 2020. Did miss a lot of time with a rib injury. I think he only played 20 or so games. He was amazing in 2019 though, and the glove is is pretty great for him. I don't know, pretty great. It's above average, I should say. Uh, but that you know, that's fine if you're a guy who's going to be an offensive difference maker, which he showed he can be. I uh, had a 995 OPS with 31 homers in 2019. Uh, he's actually, even with the terrible dud season of 2020, he's worth the fifth most war among catchers over the last two years. So had to give Mitch Carver a little bit of love on the list.
1: I wanted to put him on my list. I really did because he has a fun Instagram account. He has all the power in the world. He seems like the new and improved Gary Sanchez to some levels, but he also might be splitting time with Ryan Jeffers on the twins. And you know, the combination of the two will be amazing. They could even be the best catching tandem at all at baseball. They have that much potential. But not knowing if he's going to be the starting catcher in 2021, that's tough to really put him up on the top 10 list. And I wouldn't be surprised if he makes the cut eventually, but that's why I didn't have him as high. Trucking line at Ron to number six on the list, I have Travis Darno and Man, you got to feel bad for the Mets fans. He had some good years for them. Still had a bit of a rubber arm, especially during the playoff year. Still grades out as a good defender, though, overall, according to fan drafts, at least. And he's hitting the ball harder than ever. had a 93.4 exit velo in 2020. And that's, that's saying something, because that's, that's upper-tier elite velocity. And he's still showing the power department. Definitely can see double-digit home runs again in this season. And he's pretty much a staple at this point for being a great contributor on and off the field.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't rank Darno, but he was right on the, the edge for me. And the reason I had to leave him off is I thought that, you know, that offensive production that we saw really take off in 2020 may have been a little bit of an outlier, but it does sound like the Statcast data kind of backs up that breakout. So I maybe should have given a little bit more consideration to Darno. And he does have a good profile and pretty good defensively as well. Uh, but number six for me, I went with Salvador Perez. Had an amazing resurgent 2020 season. You know, you know he's a five time gold glove winner, uh, and the defense is pretty strong. I think maybe he almost might be a little overrated on defense, but I'm supposed to say nice things about him, tell you why I ranked him at number five. Uh, but he's been a pretty awesome offensive player throughout his career. I know he can usually give you pretty good power, give you not a liability at batting average, which is huge at this position where there is so many liabilities. In that regard, uh, I know he batted 333 last year with a 986 OPS. He can Usually, give you 25-ish homers. So, I like Salvador Perez to hopefully continue to do it. And he still—he he seems like he's way older than he is, but he's only going to be 31 next season. So, looking forward to more Sal.
1: I still can't believe he's 32. I think Mitch Garver's almost as old as him as well, and Garver just seems a lot younger. For example, and Perez has been in the game for over nine years now. So he's been an old man in that sense, a lot of innings under his belt. It's interesting that you mention his defense, Henry, because he has, of course, won all those gold gloves, and he's still slightly above average on fan grasp. He's also had some poor defensive years, and sure, he has great power. Maybe some of the most power, most consistent power in the list. But if you have a sub on base percentage of 300 it's really tough to put him on there. And with home runs being hit as often as they are nowadays, it doesn't mean as much. You're not going to get on base and your selecting percentage is not too, too high. It was incredibly high in 2020, but that's usually not the case for him either. He doesn't hit too, too many doubles.
0: Right. Yeah. And another a no small sample size to kind of complicating things when making everything look better when you only play 60 games.
1: For sure. And then, Moving right along to my next pick, I have Buster Posey. And Posey was the greatest catcher for a couple of years. He, he won a batting title for the first time forever. I think he compiled like a 10.1 season, 10.1 F4 season, which is totally unheard of, especially from the catching position. So he's remarkable. And even though he's not the same offensive contributor anymore, he's still an incredible defender. I know Yadier Molina gets a lot of love, and he as he should, but Buster Posey's right there with him. He's amazing, and this also could be his last year in San Francisco, too, as they're looking part ways, and he has a big player or club option next year. However, I hope his run doesn't end in San Francisco because he's been their mainstay for so many years in the face of the franchise.
0: Yeah, he's, he's been synonymous with all those championship teams, really the heart and soul of that team, and. I would actually take his legacy over Yadier Molina when you look at him side to side. I think Posey actually has a better career war than Molina does. And and I'm also a known hater on Yadier Molina. He's, you won't catch him anywhere on my top 10 list, but you actually, he won't see Buster Posey on mine either. Uh, and I know that he has meant so much to this position, so much to the game, but yeah, the, the decline is kind of scaring me off there where he yeah, really not the offensive player that he used to be but I, I do like the point too that his defense is still strong and he is not like a total scrub on offense or anything and can still give you a little bit of production and, and should play a lot for the giants still so and maybe i should have given him more thought to the top 10 but there's actually kind of a surprisingly good amount of guys that you could consider for this and it's it's tough you gotta weigh like offense versus defense so the disposition, position and way different than others um but Number five for me is a dude who I didn't realize had, had pretty good defensive numbers, but Christian Vasquez, the Red Sox backstop. I had to put him in finding that those defense uh, numbers were actually pretty strong, maybe at least above average to really pretty good, depending on the source. I know baseball reference and fan don't always agree, um, but pretty good offensive numbers as well in a strong lineup. And I didn't realize too that he's tied for the third most war among catchers dating back to 2018. So, I think really that's just well-rounded defensive and offensive skill set there is, is helping attribute to that.
1: Great minds think alike. Vasquez is actually my number four pick, and you said it best. He's been a great defender his entire career. He might have been playing for playing time a little bit with Sandy, De- Sandy Leone and Blake Swyhard and Red Sox system, but he's their main catcher at this point. And he might not be the best hitter, but he still can produce over 700 OPS, which is pretty good for catcher and about 15 home runs and then you factor in his great defense too. And he's a really consistent player as well. So he's my number four for that reason.
0: Yeah. And yeah, definitely the playing time helps to not, not having to worry about like a Mitch Garver situation. I I didn't really think about that, that where Jeffers is going to push up the playing time helps to get the majority of those at bats. Certainly. um, And that is a measure of how, how good of a player you are when you're putting together a top 10 list. It's something to consider, but Number four for me, I went with Yasmani Grandal. He is a pretty dynamic offensive player, uh, and and he's never actually won a gold glove, but his defensive metrics suggest that he probably should have a couple of times, perhaps, over the years. He's a very strong defender as well. Definitely better known for the bat, uh, but I mean, the glove is really pretty strong as well. But he's had some pretty awesome, huge offensive seasons. going to be with the white Sox now as, as part of that strong lineup i guess he was in 2022 but an abbreviated season in which he did struggle a little bit with a 230 batting average but the on-base percentage was still 351 despite that low average and, and he's usually a really high OBP guy as well so it's kind of the ultimate money ball measure of value but a lot of power in that bat too we've seen him approach 30 home runs in the past and could be something we see again. He's only going to be 32, which again is, is pretty old for catcher, but not ancient.
1: Henry, I got to say I'm a little angry that you put Grindahl so much lower on the list tonight. I know it's <laughs> only by a couple of spots, yet I think he has a legitimate chance for being the best catcher in baseball. I know that we have our own pits for that one, but he's, he's really up there. He has been great for a while. He is deserving of a gold glove at some point. He still has 25 plus home runs and sure the batting average has never been that high, but he's on base percentage, usually 350 plus. And he doesn't throw out many runners, but that framing ability, boy, just one of the best catchers in baseball.
0: Absolutely. And then just well-rounded all around uh, good offense, good defense. And I probably could have put him a few spots higher. Maybe I should have switched him out with my number three guy, bit of a homer pick here. Wilson Contreras. I had to do it. I had to do it, Adam. I love this man. Uh, but really, the reasoning there is just the upside that he showed in 2019 was, was just undeniable with 24 home runs and 888 OPS. And he has one of the strongest arms in, in the position as well. He, he throws out a lot of base runners trying to steal, and he's kind of famous for firing down to first with the back pick as well. And he is an improved pitch framer as well, something I mentioned earlier in the show. So working to improve the other parts of his defensive game too. He, As it is right now, he's about slightly above average, around average with the glove overall. But I think there's a lot of upside in that bat too. And he's, he's shown fairly good batting average over the course of his career with a 265 career line and a 351 OBP. So he, he does draw his walks as well. I think there's a whole lot of upside, a whole lot to like in Wilson Contreras' game.
1: I've never really understood why he has been worth more by a war basis, because he's never had a three-war season before, and yet he almost always has above-average pop, above-average on-base percentage, and at least around average with the glove. And even last year, he's above-average. So there's a lot of reason to believe that he's the number three catcher in baseball. However, I'm putting my number three in a youngster, Will Smith, and he has really, really been impressive in a short amount of time. He's had 35 home runs combined in AAA and major league baseball in 2019. I think he had an over 400 on base percentage last year and increases his strikeout rate a lot too. I think in a couple of years from now, he's going to be the best catcher in this list and the sky's the limit for him.
0: I agree with you all the way, Adam actually at will Smith is, is number two on my list. Um, so I, I'm right there with you in that same ballpark. He's actually a Louisville, Kentucky native, bit of a fun fact. Uh, I don't think I ever played against him in high school. He was well, close to the same age, but I don't know. I don't think I was on varsity at the same time. He was actually a heck of a pitcher in high school. He was throwing gas strikeout King. Um, but yeah, all the upside in the world at the catcher position. Well, um, he caught in high school too, obviously that's, that's the main position he plays, but He had two straight, his his only two MLB seasons with an OPS over 900. It was 980 last year, even in a small sample size. That is awfully impressive. A lot of power in that bat. Looks like he's going to be able to give you some batting average as well. Uh, The defense isn't great, but it's certainly not atrocious. I think he's had one year with slightly above average defense, one year with slightly below average defense. So if he can improve that. And I think there is a very real chance he overtakes my number one at some point, and he has the benefit of being a lot younger.
1: He also has the benefit of being a Los Angeles Dodger as well, of course, because those numbers are going to be inflated. And he's working with great pitchers too, so probably make his job as a framer at least a little bit easier. Absolutely. Moving on ahead to the number two pick, we already discussed him pretty much in depth, and that's Yasmani Grandal. I was really, really tempted to place a number one. And I almost wanted to do that just for the sole fact of causing tro- controversy and having an unfavorable pick. But I kind of went my gut here. I think that the only reason why his worse number one pick is because his OPS is a little bit worse. So he's a little bit worse of a hitter. And he's a little bit better of a framer, but he has a, his arm is a lot worse too. The number one pick that both spoilers, me and Henry both have on our list, He's just amazing on both sides of the ball. So, and there's really no one stopping him.
0: Yeah, it had to be JT Real Muto, man. There was, there was no, I mean, I know Grandall is, is close as well. And Will Smith is, is pushing for him too. I couldn't have made the case for Contreras at number one, but it, it's got to be Real Muto. They're just the best offensive player at of the position and a case to be made. One of the best defensive players as well. Great pitch framer, great arm. Uh, I mean, he's so consistent at the plate, giving you like a 270-plus batting average, giving you good power, good on-base percentage. He, he's the rare catcher that you actually can slot in with confidence to the middle of your lineup and trust him to produce. Even uh, with the injury, I know it was, uh, it was a broken thumb, I believe, or it was it suffered a little a couple weeks ago. He actually got the cast off recently, too, so I think he's progressing very quickly there. And sure to have another great year for JT Ramuto. He's he a beast.
1: There's a reason why the Phillies wanted him back on the team. And you're right. He fits great with their lineup, too. The Phillies' bread and butter is really their offensive potential, adding him and Gregorius. And Ramuto is really going to be probably number five hitter, maybe number six hitter or so. And he can't be as catching, too. I think he's had 35-plus percent of caught stealing rate over the season before. and. He's been great since his time at the Marlins, too. He really has a chance for going down as one of the best catchers in this in the 2010s and maybe even the 2020s, too. And there's a reason why he has the largest contract in free agency at, as a catcher.
0: And he's been doing it for so long and so consistently. And I know he's starting to get a little bit up there in age. And I know catchers can age faster than, than usual, but or faster than other positions, but there hasn't really been much evidence of a decline for real Muto thus far. And I think that's part of the reason the Phillies were confident enough to go ahead and give him that huge deal. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to continue to be great for years to come and could very well go down as, as one of the greater catchers from our generation. There's, there's some good guys uh, though, to be in that conversation as well. I know we talked to Posey and Molina earlier in the show, but Joe Mauer too, certainly one of the the stronger catchers from our era, but you know, I didn't know if this was going to be a very fun position to talk about. I thought it was kind of weak, but I think we still had a, a pretty awesome position preview around it, Adam. So thank you uh, for for tuning in, as always, viewers. We appreciate you all watching the Exit Below podcast presented by Backsports Page. I think we're going to talk a little bit of pitchers with the position preview next time around. That's all we got left. And then it's going to be the start of the season. Anytime, it's, it's going to be 1st of April, I believe. So we are within one month now. Isn't that amazing? Uh, So thank you all again for tuning in. Uh, We appreciate you all as always, and we will see you next week. Uh, Until then, this is the Exit Below podcast with Henry and Adam.